Welcome to On the Edge with Eddie, Detangling Black Identities. I am your host, Eddie Etsy. I am excited, thrilled for you to be joining our journey to explore all the different shades of Blackness, have real conversations and discussions. You know, I tell you guys all the time, our conversation stories, discussions are not meant to degrade, discourage, or prove a point because people be thinking I'm trying to prove a point. I'm not trying to prove a point. Exploring our Black identities, it's all about learning, empowering, giving a voice to, uh, for people to tell their stories, and at times be a voice for people who don't feel comfortable telling their stories. I am super excited, though, thrilled and overjoyed because I have Dr. Tamika Cage Conley with me today, and she's all about telling stories She's all about writing Black stories. She's all about anything Black. I mean, the woman is the Black of the Black, if you know what I mean. Hey, listen, a little bit about Dr. Tamika. Um, She's a graduate of the fiction program of the Our Writers Workshop. She was awarded the Truman Capote Fellowship and the Provost Postgraduate Visiting Writer Fellowship in Fiction. Her work has been published all over the place, including the Virginia Quarterly Review, Kalalu, the African American Review, and everywhere else. She also received writing fellowships from the Hours Writer Workshop, the Cave Cayman Foundation, the Virginia Center for Creative Arts, the Squaw Valley Community of Writers, the Vermont Studio Center, I mean, she talked about a talented writer, the opera for which she wrote, the libretto, um, a gathering of sons, was awarded the bronze medal in the Society and Social Issues Catalog of New York Festival TV and Film Awards. Dr. Tamika got a PhD from Louisiana State University in 2006, where she was the recipient of the Hall Perkins Doctoral Fellowship and recipient of the Lewis Simpson Distinguished Dissertation Award for her dissertation, Painful Decourses, Borders, Regions, Representation of the Female Circumcision from Africa to America. Y'all, I mean, there is so much I can tell you about Tamika. And listen, when I first met Tamika, I was so mesmerized by her unique look. I said to myself, now that right there is a powerful black woman from deep South Louisiana, Dr. Tamika Cage Conley. Welcome to On the Edge with Eddie. How are you doing? (laughs) Hey, Eddie, it's so fantastic to be here with you. I appreciate that that introduction so much. My brother, you said unique. You said you said you said unique though. Yeah. I was I, I, was, <laughs> I appreciate that very no, much. No, unique though. I mean, so unique in the sense that so like your look is very unique, right? And I say unique because not not unique in a bad way, but I mean when I look at you, I see everything 
Black African, Black American, I mean, you represent, right? And you're not afraid to show your power and uniqueness in, in, in how you dress and how you look. And I think that's an absolutely, you know, marvelous thing. Um, I do too. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, no, and I, know, I, I, I really love that about you. Yeah, I, thank you so much, Eddie. And I, I didn't, trust me, I did not take anything negative. I just wanted the folks to understand <laughs> what you meant. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Knew, I knew that you meant that. And I appreciate that very much. I mean, you know, um, that's part of my, my inheritance, to be honest with you, yeah. you know, as a Southern born black woman, you right. know, growing up in the deep South and growing up in a family where appearance really mattered, um, mm -hmm. not for any other reason than to present ourselves to, um, you know, frankly, a very racist, uh, environment. Uh, so no matter where we were going, if it was to the grocery store, if it was going to get our hair done, I mean, we would get dressed up to get our hair done. You know, we would, there were certain things that my, 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 my family just invested yeah. in. And part of that was because we were a working class family. We, we, everybody worked really hard for every single thing. And frequently, right. most often it, it wasn't even like that was, that was um, enough, but what we had an abundance of was who we let the world know we were. So yeah. that that those were seeds sown from the time I was, you know, very young. Mm, nice, nice. All right. Well, we ha we have a lot of you know um, unpacking to do with your identity um, as sort of a, a powerful black woman in the writing spaces, and you've done a lot of work. Um, talking about looks, though, I mean, you're wearing this gorgeous um, <laughs> earring and like this three-piece uh, necklace. What is that necklace? It looks amazing. Where did you get that from? <laughs> Well, you know, your your previous guest, DK Neuro, had this uh, made for me. DK, who's, you know, my my dear closest friend on the planet, actually, and also my collaborative partner on the Reclamation Project. And there's there's a story to why I have this, actually. Oh, okay. uh, I have picked out, there, I have three of these from him that he had made for me in Ghana. Yeah. And this one was a bonus gift because uh, the one I picked out Right. was not ready for my graduation from the Iowa Writers Workshop. So it was supposed to be my graduation present in 2018. And mm -hmm. as you know, you know, you get things when people go to Ghana and come back. And yep. so what was happening was when people were coming, first his aunt, I think, was coming back and it wasn't ready and he was livid. And then his mom came and she forgot it. And then I think <laughs> it just kept happening. Right. And so Finally, it happened that somehow it got into his sister's hands because someone had come back and then she sent it to him. Mm. And what he did was because I had to wait so long for the first one, he had this one made for me as a second additional gift. Bonus. <laughs> yeah, as a bonus present because I had to wait so long for the first one. So this one was completely completely unexpected and right. and i love it uh, actually if i took it off and showed it to you uh it looks like uh it, it kind of looks like a dna strand mm, that's, how right. intricate, that's how intricate it is if you can yeah. see. yep yep you know right so all coiled. the different colors and yeah. everything yeah so it's coiled and it's it's very dramatic. Um, and I, I like to wear, um, it, it's a stand-in for me frequently. Mm. You know, a lot of people are, 
giving very proper uh, uh, odes to Kamala um, and wearing their, their pearls. So this is frequently, I have a string of pearls, but this is frequently my response to, to pearls. I wear this often in, in the stead of pearls, which does speak to, you know, my, my, my sort of uh, uh, straddling, you know, the world, many worlds between, yeah. you know, being, being obviously born in America, but also someone who, who identifies as a displaced African as well, because right. there is so much about that part of me that I don't know. Well, let, let, let's how about let's start talking about that a little bit. You're born in America. You were born in Louisiana. Um, grew up in Louisiana. Uh, again, I've had people. I've had conversation with people from you know down south and what down south is like. Tell me from you know. Tell me a little bit about your story. Again, you were talking about how appearance matters um, growing up. What was it like growing up down south in Louisiana as a black woman, the black family? What was that like for you? Um, you know, so my my parents were very young when I was born. My mother was 19, my father was 21, and uh, my father um, was had gone to to college at Southern University in Baton Rouge, where mm -hmm. I ended up teaching um, actually for a few a year before I took my job at Bucknell, which is what led me out of the South. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, I, I would have to say that there was a tremendous amount of joy in my childhood. Um, you know, I was, I was very loved and I was very supported from a young age. And I was told frequently um, how smart I was. Um, I will tell you also that a lot of my work and, and some of my ambitions around, you know, uh, taking my work and spreading it to, to, to parts of West Africa, especially to Ghana, which just sort of sank into my heart very deeply, is that I always had a curiosity about Africa as, as homeland. That was always something that it, it just feels like I was born with that. And, you know, Louisiana is, you know, I haven't lived there in a very long time, but when I was growing up there, um, there was so much, uh, color prejudice. And so it was not just racism, systemic racism, classism. It was also the, the, the sort of uh, a strange identity of being a dark-skinned Black girl mm. in Louisiana. And you combine that with being working class, working poor. Yeah. Then th th those labels tried to attach themselves to me very early on where I had to feel like I was fighting for my identity, fighting for uh, the, the, very, the beauty that I embrace now. I had to fight for this. I had to fight for it because, you know, those are, 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 are very are generational um, strongholds, barriers um, that I felt I was overcoming all the time. My confidence was uh, in, in my intelligence and the fact that I had um, you know, tremendous power uh, intellectually, you know, just because I think it was astonishing for people to yeah. kind of know that I was really good with words very early on. And so that was um, something that, you know, just really colored how I would push forward, um, you know, from birth, which was a very curious thing that 
also points to, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of devastating way that racism permeated black life in Shreveport. Right. You know, my, my mother had had some difficulties in her pregnancy with me um, and she was hospitalized. And she had gone to tell the doctors that she was, that she really believed that her daughter, her child was about to be born. And they told her that she was nervous and this was mm -hmm. her first pregnancy mm -hmm. and she didn't know what she was talking about and that she just needed to go use the bathroom. <laughs> and so she goes wow. in the bathroom and she, is hovering over the toilet and I slipped out and my wow. mother caught me and kept me from going into the toilet. And she walked, she had to walk from the bathroom in her suite to the hallway while leaning over holding me while I was dangling from the umbilical cord. And she remembers that there was a nurse screaming, catch that baby, catch that baby, right? And I mean, so th this is the type of systemic racism where you're talking about yeah. an assault upon my mother, an assault upon my life before I was even born, before I even yeah. knew yep. my great-grandmother would have said, yep. you know, that I was in the world. And so when you think about that type of structural uh, sexism and racism where a young Black woman is being told that that's not her baby, but she needs to go essentially pee. Mm. This is this is how you understand, mm. yep. you know, the nature of of miracles when right. we are yep. uh, when we are black people across the world. Because, you know, that there is something. This is why we do have Black Lives Matter. Because from from birth, there was there's a way of of saying this girl matters. This girl right. life life matters. You know how she looks matters, how she speaks matters, her mind matters. And I would have to say that I was surrounded with a considerable amount of love that helped me combat, you know, hatred. Yeah, so that, that, again, that's an absolutely powerful story. Um, you know, how you were born into this world, you know, already you were born you know, sort of somewhat disadvantaged, right? Because again, you were a preemie, you know, you had to be caught by your mother and, you know, her being so young and having gone through all of that, you know, purely because, you know, again, it's in the color of her skin, right? Um, you know, and it, it's, 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 it's very powerful to listen to, you know, you knowing the story about how you were born and translating that into your work, um, you know, and accepting your identity, um, you know, in that space, you know, it, but you talked about, you know, having to fight for your identity, and, you know, and being a dark, a darker skinned black individual, um, you know, and people, you know, you knew that you were smart. Were you ever in a situation that um, being a black, knowing that you were smart, but yet treated that, oh, you're a subhuman? <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that in two parts. I'll say I I understood that I was working from a, what what people from the outside thought was disadvantaged. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, but I have to say that I also felt advantaged in other ways that I had people surrounding me who really did believe in me. Now, right. there was certainly, certainly the, the, the challenges and the strain and the stress of, you know, not having enough right. sometimes, right? 
But I mean, to be honest with you, if you think about it, how many, how many people can we think about who are Af African-American in this country who have been success stories, as I would like to believe that I'm on that path, who have had similar upbringings? I mean, we're, we're, right. we're not talking about, I mean, most of us uh, come from what we say that I think is sometimes oversaid, but at the same time, you know, cannot be understated that that right. we that humble beginnings right so i think that there's something unique in the birthright of being uh black american and particularly born not just in the south but in the deep south yeah. uh you know the stronghold of the confederacy <laughs> mm -hmm. is the place yeah. that i was born into i mean you know where I, where i'm where i was born shreveport louisiana cattle parish uh, was was at one point, you know, the 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 place in the in the United States that lynched more black people in Caddo Parish uh, than any other place in the world. So yeah. you're talking about a stronghold of hatred towards black skin. So it doesn't surprise me looking back that being dark skin would be not only frowned upon but reviled, hated, dismissed, abused, scarred. That that doesn't surprise me at all. And it doesn't surprise me that black people in my community, you know, inherited that. And we that is what colorism is. Colorism is when your own people look upon that darkness as being something that is anything less than beautiful, stunning, highly melanated, <laughs> you know, gorgeousness, right? Yep. You know, which is which is what I experienced. Fast forward, you know, years to 2005 when I when I went to to Ghana, yeah. and you know, got out of the airport. And I know that this is something we're going to eventually talk about. But I think it's just it, it's what I have been searching my life for. So a big part of my work is to foster, um, you know, a, an exchange program that would put kids born in Shreveport who have ambition and who have, you know, a global perspective to, to give them what I wish I had. I think that had I had, I had an awareness right. about what it meant, literally, like I knew that African meant that this is where my ancestors were from, but right. I wish I understood it in, in a more lived experience way, right? And so that's, in, in so many ways, this is me, my work uh, is living out that 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 dream yeah so before we get to your work uh, again we have a lot a lot to talk about your work because your work absolutely phenomenal um i mean you dissect intersect all of this intersectionalities um and you know all these identities um but before we get that so you know again grew up in down uh, deep down south louisiana um you know baton rouge you you want to teach there uh, how did you end up in bucknell and what was that transition like going from, you know, a black girl from down south, getting used to the town, growing up in the south, and you up in Bucknell? How did that happen? And what was that like for you? Well, you know, that's a great question. So I ended up, you know, I did all of my education. The only degree that I have outside of Louisiana is from the, the writer's workshop. So you know, I went to college in New Orleans at Dilley University, a historically black college in the Gentilly area of New Orleans. And then I did the PhD at LSU in Baton Rouge. And so my last year, um, I think it was, I ended up teaching at Southern 
for a year to supplement my my fellowship. I can't even remember how it ended up happening, but I was only teaching a couple of classes at Southern to make some extra money. Then I ended up teaching four classes there and I was kind of like this full-time adjunct instructor. Right. And so um, someone who was the, Ed White, I think it was. Yeah, Ed White uh, received word that Bucknell was looking for a visiting assistant professor in English with a concentration in African-American literature. Hmm. And so I applied for the job, um, got an interview, um, interviewed, and then was informed I, I w- they made me an offer. And so I scheduled a visit and um, just felt like there was, n- there was no reason to not accept it. I mean, it was right. just, um, you know, the, the, the package was really fantastic. Bucknell is a reputable, um, you know, university on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And, I, yeah. and I also felt like it was time for a change, to be honest with you. I felt like, um, you know, I had by that point lived all over Louisiana, born in Shreveport, right. lived in New Orleans, then moved an hour from back to Baton Rouge, which culturally, this is what yep. a lot of people might not realize, yeah. but culturally that one hour <laughs> distance yep. between New Orleans and Baton Rouge could not be more like longer in terms mm-hmm. of culture. Like oh, it's, yes, it's yep. completely too di- like night and day. So, um, you know, by the time I left Baton Rouge, I was ready to leave Baton Rouge. Um, Baton Rouge was uh, rebel flag culture, uh, very difficult to find any sort of artistic life at that time, um, unless there was a reading um, on campus at LSU. Um, it, it was just, it just felt to me very dominated by sports and, um, you know, and LSU itself is, a, is it, there's a lot of racism and LSU was at the time. I mean, I don't know how much has changed. Very white, you know, yeah. very white institution. And um, I was ready to go. <laughs> um, and so um, when when that offer came, it just couldn't have come fast enough for me. You know, even though uh, Lewisburg is, is a more, um, you know, in central PA, Right. Um, you know, and very, there's not a lot happening in Lewisburg, right. uh, except Bucknell, but it was very close to Philadelphia. So I was like two and a half, three hours from Philly, DC, New York City. I mean, I was going to New York City like it was nothing. I mean, I was at that time, you know, single. So you know how that is, yep. you know, you know, right. So my girls would call me and they would say, Tamika, come now. It, sometimes it would be like 930 at night and they would say, like, why are you in why are you in Lewisburg? Like, come see us. And I'm like, right. oh, my God. And I would get in my car and, drive. you know, and drive at nonstop. <laughs> I, I didn't stop. I didn't stop. I would drive nonstop from my from my place in Lewisburg. To my girlfriend's a, a brownstone apartment in Harlem. Wow. I, had, I had gotten it down to a like literally, it took me three hours and 15 minutes to drive from my house to her house. Uh-huh. And it got to the point that that felt like 30 minutes to me. It just, right. it just right. felt yeah. like, you know, right. and that was something very liberating about being young and being able to just do that and, and to go from you know, my life, which was very small in many ways, um, outside of, except my students, right. um, Bucknell, to 
to New York City, which, you know, just incredibly exciting for, for me. I mean, you know, I, I have, have been to New York um, while I was living in Louisiana a few times, but during that time, I really got to know the city because I would go so frequently. Um, yeah. So in terms of my transition to Bucknell, I have to say it was, it was uh, uh, just to use a common, a common phrase, it was culture shock. <laughs> yep. You know, um, yeah. in so many ways. I mean, first of all, the the you know, I'm very fortunate that my current um, university, I'm assistant professor of English and creative writing at Oxford College of Emory. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, however, I mean, I I'm, I'm very fortunate to to be able to do everything that I have had ambitions and desires to do at Oxford. Um, at that time, I wasn't aware. I would have to say that 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 um, you could, for example, say that you want to take a group of students to see *The Color Purple* on Broadway, right. and funds would be made available to you to do that. Or that um, I didn't have to do interlibrary loan. Um, I could just say I wanted a book and order it, and the university would purchase it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. These these are. It, it was just the amount of resources and then the wealth of the students, I would have to say. I right. mean, you know. Because it's a private um, school. Yeah, 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 yeah. A private, very expensive school. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, but I will have to also say that they were, they were, um, some of my students continue to be some of my, I mean, they're like, now that we're closer in age, we were close in age then because at that time I was actually the youngest professor on campus. I was 28 when I took that oh, job. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about it, my graduating seniors were right. only six years younger than younger I was. Than you. Yeah. You know? And so that was an interesting thing too, to be, um, because I started my PhD program really young. So I started the PhD at 23. I took the job at Bucknell with what we call the, you know, ABD. So had everything, all but dissertation. So I was very close to finishing and I actually did finish the PhD when I was there. Um, So I I, I would say that there was, you know, I don't know if it was as extreme as imposter syndrome, but I will say that I felt, um, I knew that I knew that I could do the work and I knew that I was a good teacher and I knew that there was something about me that was graced with a certain electricity for the classroom. Right. Felt very confident in that. The the that wasn't the shock. The shock was the opulent wealth. Hmm. That was that that was yeah. the shock. That yeah. was the shock. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And yep. in terms of, you know, even, you know, some of my some of my professors were sort of astonished that about about what my salary was at the time. You yeah. do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and so absolutely, yeah. It, it makes me think about doing more strategic work. And, and you know, and there is some this work is being done at Oxford of, you know, students who are you know, first generation college students or students yep. who come from, you know, working class uh, backgrounds, because that, that, that was the, 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 if that was a struggle, it was that it had nothing to do with my talent as a teacher right. or, you know, at that time I was, I was more a scholar. I, I still consider myself very much. I am a scholar artist, but I was not writing as much creatively Right. Uh, at that time, because I was one finishing a dissertation and and you know doing scholarly lectures and things, but those things weren't a question for me. It was really the 
the the aspect of finding myself, you know, surrounded by that much uh, privilege. Yeah, well, well, so talking a little bit about privilege and then, you know, the well, one, let's talk about sort of the the blacks from down south going up to the east coast and then you know pennsylvania and new york um you talk about in the culture right again you know that one hour drive from new orleans to baton rouge and i will take it a bit further um again you know I, I dated a girl from Baton Rouge who lived in Mobile, Alabama, right? And we've made that, I think it's like a, a two and a half, three hour trip um, on Highway 10 or Highway 12 and Highway 10 from Baton Rouge um, to Mobile, Alabama, um, going through uh, Gulfport. And that stretch, you see so much, um, just the drive itself is so different, right? And you see, you know, the different types of blackness, um, even down south. But there is going up east, there's a different type of blackness too, right? And people from down south are different from the people out east. Um, did you experience that moving from down south to the east coast? And it, how did you see that um, from your perspective, um, you know, the different black cultures in the different parts of the United States? Oh, that's a great, great question. You know, I, um, well, first of all, in Lewisburg, there were, there were, at that time, there were hardly any of us at that time in, yeah. in Lewisburg. Um, I mean, when I went to, so, so by that point, and this is just the best way I know how to answer the question, because my lens, my lens is, is, is black and African, and I'm always thinking about making those associations. So by that right. point, by the time I went there, I have gone, I have been to Cote d'Ivoire and also to Accra and to, and to Kumasi. Mm -hmm. So by that point, when I would go to Harlem and I would be on 125th street, right. I felt like I was in Ghana. <laughs> you know what right. I'm saying? Right, yeah. And, so yep. I'm, I'm, and, and, and I think what I was experiencing very yeah. much was, was a deep sense of cultural pride. Right. right. And I also felt that way when I visited, you know, the Gullah, the Gullah region as well, when I was in Buford and St. Helena. Yeah. I felt that 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 West African different. It was a different feeling, right? But it was it was that wave of feeling, um, and so I I have to I, I think about this because and and I have to also be honest and tell you, in some ways the university experience is um, it especially when I was in LSU, particularly when I was in LSU. I really had such a uh, an isolated life during that time right. that my I really went three places predominantly, and that was where I lived uh, on campus for classes mm. and what maybe the library or something. And I was like, I mean, you know, uh, uh, I, I I I guess I'm saying that because I don't I don't think about blackness in terms of the different ways we express it in terms of the South and the North, I guess I'm thinking about it in terms of the various ways that our, how we were dispersed from the continent 
and the legacy of slavery and how that has perhaps impacted our customs. But I don't know if I was thinking about that because, you know, I would have some really, I would say this too, in Harlem, for example, certain parts of Brooklyn as well. I mean, just the unbelievable level of, of, of communal black self-love. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I and mean, that's something that you experience in places like Ghana, right? Because there's there, there's that culture of community. It's community oriented. Like people, you know, express their emotions, they express their love, and they're not afraid to show that. Hey, listen, you know, I love you this way. I love you as a sister. I love you as a family. And you know, and you have that sense of belonging, right? You know that you're in that space and you belong there. Um, and it feels good, <laughs> right? And, and I think that's what you're feeling. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, there was nothing. I mean, I have been trying to, I, let me just put it to you this way. I have been trying to get back to Ghana since the day I left mm. in 2005. Yeah. So, so much about my work, my life, my decisions for myself, what I want for my son. Yeah. You know, who's a very, who's six years old and Ed, I kid, kid you not, he is, he is four foot six. Six years old? Yeah. Yeah. He's four, six right now. I mean, he's like wow. up to my shoulder <laughs> and he's only six years old. So, I mean, you know, you think about, um, you know, what, what this country does to black yep. boys in general yep. and yep. particularly how it does not allow our boys to be children. Mm, yep. That is and our girls as well is seeking to yeah. remove innocence from us and criminalize us and in that in that space of criminality decide that we should be killed in the street and I, and not on my watch and not my kid like no and so right. you know part of of my thinking about the world is like opening up the the world for for my son and i definitely instantly felt um instantly felt at home in Accra I mean, just in Kumasi as well. I mean, just yeah. instantly, instantly, it was, it was, it was just this immediate feeling of family, of you know, and 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 many of them they did recognize that I was I was African American and not Ghanaian, which I had to ask someone because you know I went to the Nkrumah memorial and I asked um, you know some of the sisters who were very the host ushers who were really kind to me instantly, yeah. and I asked I said how do because what happened was, I've told Derek this story. I I had, uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't have a digital camera at that time. That was when we were using the disposal. Yep, yeah. <laughs> so I was back I had in the days. Out, right back in the day. Yeah. Back in the day. <laughs> and so I was, I had run out of film and someone said, Oh, you may be able to go find something down there. But of course I didn't. But I was walking back and uh um someone said, I there were these two young guys in the car right. and they followed me, their eyes and their, literally I could feel them right. following me with their heads and their eyes as I walked in the crosswalk yep. and I read it out of my peripheral. I, I read the lips of one of the guys and he said, that is a black American. Right. And I, and I, I was so, 
I was really dumbfounded because I I was just like I look like all y'all like right, I don't exactly yeah. Is it, yeah what is it that you're seeing in me that lets yeah. you know that you yeah, know black like, America, yeah. like in the south she ain't from around here you know yeah. like how did how did, how did he know that so yeah. I asked the sister when I got back I said you know I think I think I read this young brother's lips and this is what he said I said how does he know how does he know? And and right. they just went on there to say, it's the way you're dressed. It's yep. the way you're walking. Yep. It's the way you're... So one of the... Carry yourself. Yeah. yeah like, if I go to Senegal right now, they would know that I was not Senegalese, for example. Yep. Like, just like, we, we can read it in your body. And so... Yeah. That was really interesting to me. Um, I, w- I remember, too, when I was in the market in Accra, these young brothers, beautiful. I will go ahead and admit that. Um, were, <laughs> were they, 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 you know, I was just looking around and everything. And of course they wanted to know who I was and, and they just kind of spontaneously did a djembe welcome from me and just, yeah. you know, we're like, we just want to welcome you, welcome you home. And that's the kind that, that is extremely Southern. Mm. That is that, you know, people talk about Southern hospitality. Right. That is real. That's one of the reasons why I, it, you know, I will admit this to you. I haven't cooked for you, Ed. I will, I will fix that after COVID. But, uh, you <laughs> yeah, know. I'm waiting. <laughs> I, I heard you were really good cook too now. Well, Don't I, I, I can throw it down in the kitchen. <laughs> I know, I heard that. I heard, I heard. Um, but, um, you know, I, I cook an abundance of food when I cook. Yep. You know, yep. I cook slowly. I take my time. I do layers of seasoning. I mean, you know, so mm-hmm. much of what I yep. was experiencing, right. both when I went to Cote d'Ivoire and also when I was in Accra, um, it, it spoke to me as being very similar in terms of the time taken, the effort, right? Um, yep. And all of that is connected to love. It is connected to generosity. It's connected to really what it is. Right is you don't have to be hungry around me. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. like yep. if I if I got it, if I got it, you got it. I'm a and that, yep. Right. And that is that is something that I see very synonymous between the South that I grew up in and 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 when I was in Ghana. Yeah. So um it, it's funny because so even me being I born in Ghana, grew up in Ghana, moved to the United States when I was about four, 14, 15, um, and later went back to Ghana and then came back to the United States. Like even now, when I go to Ghana, right, people look at me and they're like, oh, he is an African-American, right? And it's crazy to think that, you know, the way, you know, we carry ourselves, um, it, it, people can, you know, instantly recognize that. And I'll even take it a step further. Um, in the African countries, right, I can look at somebody's facial features and know that that person is Nigerian or that person is from Togo or even within the Ghana, the Ghana country itself, you can look at someone and be like, you know what, that person is from the Ewe, you know, that person is, is Ashanti or Fanti or Ga, right? Um, and <laughs> we have this very distinct features that, you know, in the United States, a lot of people, or again, people don't actually appreciate that, right? And unless you go to, you know, places like Ghana, or, you know, some of the African countries, when you notice and experience that, and you truly see, wow, you know, our Black features 
are very distinct and absolutely powerful. Um, and they can recognize that, right? But I want, I want to ask you a question. Before you went to Ghana, though, um, what were some of the pre- preconceived notions that you had before you went to Ghana? Um, and when you got there, you know, the, the, the things that you had or you knew about the country before you get there, you know, were they true? Or did you get there and be like, oh, this is really not what I thought it was going to be like. Hmm. Um, so I guess I'll start here. I, I expected to um, be surrounded by brilliance and beauty. And I think the only thing maybe I underestimated was how deep the spirit of home going would be. Mm. I, I think I felt that I, I hoped that I would feel that, but I think I underestimated just how deep it would be, mm-hmm. you know, cause it was very hard to be back. Once right. I got back, it was difficult to be back yeah. in the States. Um, I, I, I can't say that I had any, I was just ready again, very similar to when I left Baton Rouge to go to, to Bucknell. I was just ready to go. <laughs> I was ready, Eddie. That's what you it were, was. Yeah. I was. I was. I was you were very. You were very ready to go. You wanted to get out of there so fast. Just get out. <laughs> my brother, facts. My brother, facts. I mean, that's really what it was. I. I just needed. I needed those, and I, I hated that it was. It was so short, but it was really. It was really my work that got me to to Ghana. Um, there was a woman. Uh, uh, who I was doing work with around female circumcision and female genital mutilation. And we had done a presentation, a conference together in um, Philly. And she had offered me to stay in her room with her because we were on a, an MLA panel. Mm. Uh, and I just mentioned very, just, just not even thinking about it. I mentioned that I really wanted to go to West Africa, yeah. but it needed to be um, an Anglophone country because I didn't speak French. And she said, oh, well, I'm going to Ghana in February. She said, if you, if you can secure your plane ticket, I can, I can provide you with some place to stay. Mm. And I couldn't, I just couldn't believe that that had just fallen in my lap like that. That right. the, yep. the country I wanted to, because, you know, I started with, and I know he did become a dictator, but I started with Nkrumah. I mean, that it, his, his, his vision of liberation for Ghana his brilliance, yep. his intelligence really drew me. And right. I was really fascinated by him. Um, and, you know, he, he turned, but what I, what I had learned of him initially was what guided me and what made me want to go to, to this place where um, he had this audacity to envision freedom for the whole country, yep. which yep. led to freedom for the continent. And, yep. and I thought, yeah. this is the birthplace of liberty. I, this is where I need to be because I've always had that um, very, very sincere devotion to, um, to, to, to Black liberation and to, uh, to, to that as a human rights uh, privilege. <laughs> like, right. it, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and, and so it's, 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 it's just, that's, that's what it was for me. So um, when, when, when she just said that, I thought, okay, well, there's no way there's no way I'm not going. I mean, I'm going. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> so, you have to. Yeah. So, um, you know, she 
I, she had connected me with um, these fantastically brilliant black women scholars doing and feminists. And I did this, I mean, it was supposed to be a presentation, but it ended up being so much better than that. It was a round table discussion at mm. the University of Ghana and Legon. Yeah. And we just had this fantastic talk about what was happening in the country from the perspectives of these um, extremely empowered, thoughtful women. It was amazing. Yeah. And so we ended up, you know, going to Kumase and I stayed at the Nkrumah School, that really beautiful um, yep. uh, hotel they have on campus. Yeah, yep, tech. And I was going to dinner the night we arrived downstairs and there's this black woman from the South who was doing a fellowship mm. who was having dinner. We were only two people having dinner. And so <laughs> we just started talking and she was like, I thought you were, she thought I was the man, I thought she was the man. And so, you know, I said, I didn't know that this was going to be part of the trip. I said, I wish I had, because I would love to speak to a class here. She said, oh, if you want to speak to a class that you ain't said nothing but a word. And so the next morning, you know, she was like, meet me here yeah. in the morning. And so she, so she said that, you know, I just, just impromptu did a lecture right. in this class at the Nkrumah school in Kumasi. Yeah. So so, so, so if, if, so if anything, so to, to return to this and they had no, they didn't know I was coming. Right. She just introduced them. I introduced myself and it was a, it was an instant moment where they were saying, you are welcome. You yeah. are, we want you here. We want to hear everything you have to say. It was like an absolute like sponges, like they were absorbing my energy. I was in, in absorbing theirs and it was this fantastic, you know, um, exchange. So that's what I mean when I say, I, I don't, I don't know if, if I, any preconceived notion that I had was rooted in a, in what bell hooks calls the love ethic. I had an anticipation that I was going to experience love in Ghana, yeah. but I think there was no way for me to anticipate that it would, it would, it would, it would spark something in me that I would devote my life to returning to. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, so, you know, the story you, you, you tell is really just, you know, one piece of the Ghanaian culture, right? Right. Um, yeah. You know, again, you know, Ghanaians are, you know, usually very full of joy and very welcoming and very entertaining. And, you know, talk about, complete freedom right um you know like the example of you know meeting somebody and then the next day you're given a lecture you know that is true freedom right and that's what you know we experience as you know Ghanaians or even you know some west africans we experience that right so so then you come back to the united states and you're like oh why jesus why <laughs> you know you know it, and, and there, so I was telling the story. I don't remember who I was telling the story to in one of the podcasts that there's, there's a moment of depression when you leave Ghana, you get on the plane, and then you fly to, it depends where you're flying to, either Amsterdam or Atlanta, and then you go from that space to come into a space, especially at Iowa, that like 24, 30 hour flight time is probably for me one of the most depression things that I do every time I leave Ghana, right? You know, because I'm like, here is my true freedom, just going away slowly. 
<laughs> like, goodbye i'm not free anymore but when you got back it was really difficult for you um tell me some of the difficulties leaving ghana and then coming back to the united states into this sort of white privileged world um that you see everywhere I think one of the, I mean, you know, one of the immediate challenges was to be, there's no better word I can think of than to say bathed. I mean, I was bathed <laughs> in gorgeous, glistening, chocolate blackness. Yeah. Like everywhere I looked, um, there were people who were as chocolate as I have ever been <laughs> since I was born. And yep. That since, I mean, you talk about, um, you know, representation being everything, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, I believe in therapy. I have a therapist. And what I understand now is that um, younger parts of myself, younger versions of myself, as I've said, could have really been affirmed deeply about who I was about my beauty, about right. my body, about everything about that made me who I was, that it came from this place. I mean, I have heard that I look Ashanti yet. That's what I've heard. That's that's what I've heard. Yeah. I don't know if you agree. I agree. I've heard. <laughs> yep. And to have to have known that when I was coming of age in Shreveport, to know that there are people who have my face across the Atlantic, right? Because yep. what it does is that it supplants this, this the, 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 um, the, the, the devastating brutality of, of slavery, right? That, that, it, that, yes, this horrific institution occurred and yes, the legacy of it is still alive and you can find it in your life, the way you live, the way you um, engage with the world, what is available to you versus what's not available to, available to you socioeconomically. And yet, you know, across the water, there is this other narrative as well, right? There's, there's, this isn't, what they, what, what you inherited here is not your only inheritance, right? And so I really do, I think coming back to the States, felt like, oh man, like all that wonder that I experienced, it just felt premature is what it felt like. It felt like, you know, I had to come back because I had to finish my PhD. I mean, I was trying to really figure out how to get back to the point that I had a conversation with the chair of the English department at the University of Ghana. Yeah. And I was just saying, you know, I had sent my CV. We had had a very friendly conversation on email. And so he was expecting me. Um, he gave me a tour. Uh, I think it was Easter and the students weren't around. Mm. He gave me a tour and I, you know, we talked in his office and he said, we would really, we would love to have you. You would just have to fund it, hmm. you know? So yeah. I, so, so it just became at that moment, I kind of felt crestfallen because I was, when I say serious, Listen, you were serious. I was not playing with nobody. I was like, get me up out. I'm, I am trying to 
come over here, have yep. have some babies over here. Yep. Like I was, I was trying to do the whole life. <laughs> you understand? Right, right. And I was in the and at that not point, too late though. It's not too late. You can still do that. I'm just saying. No, 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 no. And I and I will. I will trust. Okay, me. good, good. Yes, yes. I'm telling you. I've told DK. Everyone who needs to know that that spiritually, I understand very clearly. There is. Yep. There, I, there is property with my name on it. It, yep. has not, it has not, it has not happened yet, but I claim it. You know, we I want. Can, we could take, we could take care of that. <laughs> Thank you very not much. A problem. We could take I, care of that. Yep. See, look at God. So, um, you know, I, I think when I in that moment, I, I, I just couldn't figure out how, how, how to make it happen right at that moment because. I was not finished with my PhD program I, I yet. Um, and, you know, I, it, everything happened really quickly with the job at Bucknell after that. So I really couldn't figure it out, but I felt, I didn't feel like it was a missed opportunity. I just wish I had longer, more time right. when I was there. That was the thing. I just wasn't ready to leave. And then when I got back to the U.S., I was just and and then it was it was to Baton Rouge, which wasn't even like New Orleans, you know. It wasn't even like I was going back to New Orleans, which was just very has a similar cultural affect: the weather, the food, the right. the, the the culture, yep. the music, the way the way people move their bodies to yep. music. Yep. Uh, but going back to Baton Rouge with of the rebel flags and and just just permeating whiteness. Yeah, I mean Baton Rouge was at the time culturally white, at least for me. Right, that that was my my dominant experience, and so even even teaching at a black college, right. you know, because parts of parts of I was still kind of wired around being a graduate student, just having a minimal life. Sometimes academics. You know, your life is very <laughs> minimized sometimes. And at that time, mine was. It was just, you know, what I did in the classroom, you know, preparation at home, a yeah. bunch of books. And so I think that, you know, I think that there was a significant amount of um, sadness because I have felt this sudden world of community that people who were strangers to me didn't feel like strangers. And I ultimately think that's my dream way of living. My, mm -hmm. my dream way of living is to be surrounded by people who, even if I don't know them, and even if they don't know me, we're family. Absolutely. And that's, that's what I, that's what I was missing very much when I got yeah. back. So, I mean, that, oh man, I, <laughs> I feel like we're just getting started <laughs> because <laughs> we haven't even talked about your work, your writing, your pieces and all that stuff, you know, and it, this conversation is going to continue. We're going to have more and more conversation. I am going to have you and DK back together to talk about, great. you know, the, the, you know, the, the conversations that, you know, the, the, I guess the, yeah, the conversation that you guys have with each other, um, you know, with the themes of, you know, family, heartbreak, class and childhood and all of that stuff and mm -hmm. i can't wait for that but it looks like a lot of your scars from growing up and you know the love you felt um from you know going to ghana and you know and all of that is what has really 
you know, intertwined in your work, right? So a lot, most of your your pieces, um, things that you write, you write from sort of a deep space of love, a mm-hmm. deep space of pain, um, a deep space of just you know realism, authenticity, um, and that's how you how you write into your work. Um, and it's absolutely fabulous, you know, you know, sort of the the pieces that I've you know read that you wrote is really just it grounds me right knowing that you know this is a true realistic story right (laughs) you know and 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 so tell me about you know when you dedicated yourself to telling what i saw what the african African african-american story um you know you mentioned a little bit that you know nkrumah has something to do with it and your scars is that something that you truly feel that, you know, the world really needs to hear or see? And if so, why is it important, especially for white people to understand the black scars or the black love and the black cultures and our motherland, right? Why is it so important for people to see and feel that? Well, you know, I think the word you use, authenticity, um, it is one of the things that makes craft so difficult for me in terms of uh, the pursuit of perfection, mm. because every word, every description, every sentence is really striking at authenticity. How did something really look? How did it really feel? And you're right about that intersection between you know pain and love. Um, so I, I, I think that for me, it's really about bearing a truth, you know, uh, sh- revealing an honesty that I think that even though it is particular and unique to the Black lives that uh, people, my stories, um, there's also universal human joy, suffering, longing, pain, desires. Um, Take my novel, for example, that I'm working on. Um, See, you know, it's still a struggle for me in my mind that you could have a whole system, the Jim Crow South, dedicated Mm -hmm. to saying that you know, black people were inferior and that they didn't deserve to eat at this lunch counter. Yes, they could patron the place, but they had to be served out the back door. No, you could not, you could only watch movies here during a certain time of the day or whatever. Um, You couldn't drink out of the same water fountain. It's still just, it it will never stop being a mystery to me Mm. that these same people that said, well, you're not good enough to sit next, sit in the front of the bus, allowed a black woman to nurse their children. Mm. <laughs> right, right. I raise mean, their children, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, nurse them, raise them yep. for the whole household. I mean, there right. is no, there, there, the immaculate amount of trust to put the food prepared by somebody else's hands in your mouth, right? Like the whole entire mouth, yep, yep. right? See, because because I I don't live that way, Eddie. Right. I'm, <laughs> I will eat at your house because yep. I know you enjoy me. Yep. 
I don't, I'm not eating every, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, I need to know uh, you, I need to know how you, what, what it looks like in there, you know? Oh, and oh so, God, yes. Yeah. No, this whole, no. this whole, <laughs> not, this whole not, idea. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not to, not to ruin your your train of thought or what you're saying, but okay. I need to pause for a second and make that clear, right? <laughs> for me, as a black person and most black folks in a Ghana thing, I don't know if it's a Ghana thing or the black thing, but when somebody brings you food, right? If you don't know that person, you're throwing that food in the trash, right? If you don't know how that food is cooked. You throwing that food in the trash. Like if, I mean, I've had a lot of people come and be like, oh my God, I baked you this and I baked you this. If I don't know you, I'm sorry. I'm not going to tell you I'm going to eat your food. I'd be like, thank you. The next thing you know, I'm tossing it straight in the trash. I get it. Please proceed. <laughs> Eddie, you telling on yourself, what about people who might be listening who made you a cake or something or brownies? Oh, that ain't my problem. <laughs> hey you can make me brownies all day but i'm saying if i don't know you and i don't trust you um yeah mm -mm. you know it was funny one of one of my one of my good friends that i work with now anika um her i think her auntie made pound cake um a jamaican pound cake and and brought it right and it was funny because when she came she she brought the the pound cake to my office and she brought like a knife and she brought a, she brought everything to my office right and she cut it in if, front of me right yes. and it was funny because afterwards i was telling her that you know you, you first of all you ain't white secondly you're a true jamaican because if you had not brought that thing to my office and then cut it in front of me and like asked me for a knife and right. then cut it and give it to me right in front of me, I would have yeah. been like, mm, mm -mm. I don't know about that. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm not, listen, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not one shade mad at that at all. So a big, so, you know, I, I didn't lose my train of thought, but so it, it part of, that question. I mean, my, my great grandmother was uh, a very brilliant, talented woman, uh, mm -hmm. Nancy Lee Washington Young. I miss her dearly. And as I get older, I miss her more. Um, and she had, you know, great ambitions for her life, um, yeah. but they were stomped out by her very possessive, you know, jealous husband who really wanted to regulate her to the home. You know, right. so a lot of things she wanted to do, she wanted to be a pianist. She wanted to be, you know, um, a hairstylist. She wanted to do all these things, but she ended up being a domestic because, you know, he had absorbed all of her youth, you know, and mm -hmm. once she got to a certain place, this was, this was, this was all she could do, especially in very racist, sexist Shreveport, Louisiana. Right. But listen, this lady would wear heels, you know. I mean, we're talking about and this. This this is the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing that you know. And and Derek and I'll talk about this when he's on uh, DK. Um, but these are the these are the connections that I that I was making in my in my work that blessed me to discover that there was someone I could have these conversations with who yeah. was making that those those same connections because you know, Sambene was not imagining <laughs> merely in um black girl right when you know you have this stunning picturesque 
you know, queenly young African woman who yeah. was wearing heels while she's sweeping these white people's flats right. in France. Yeah. I, you know, like the, 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 the issue with that was simply she knew who she was right. and she was not going to allow their definition of her body right. distort her identity. That was very much my great grandmother. And it would just bother me to the point that I, I, I felt violent inside, honestly, yeah. that she would, that, that these girls who lived in the house where she, that she cleaned called her by her first name. Hmm. <laughs> that they call her Nancy and it right. made me want to regurgitate every single time she told us that because mm -hmm. in my neighborhood in right. my community yep. you call her Miss Nancy yep that that miss was so present that it was like one word Miss Nancy yep. like it was that was the way you would that that was the respect that she had earned in the community because she was a big hearted woman. I mean, listen, she didn't take anything off right. of anybody, right. but she had a big heart. If she could help you, she would. If she had $2, you had one. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, this yep. is the type of woman who raised me. So what I was grew up very curious about was how much, even growing up in the 1980s and the early 90s in Shreveport, how segregated my life still was. I mean, I was reading about the civil rights movement and mm. I kept asking myself, <laughs> I was like, wait, did some, it's something different. Like I, it was, it, it was like, it was very difficult for me because, because, you know, my life did not have, I mean, like Tony Morrison has a, you know, a white girl is one right. word and beloved, right? Like um, I, white people were like sightings in my neighborhood. Right. We didn't yep. we didn't, we didn't cohabitate. We didn't shop at the same grocery stores. We right. didn't go to the same church. Um I could go my whole life almost. And if not for school, right. I would not have seen one. And I am I mean people are listening they can't see me, but when I'm saying one, I'm putting it in quotes because Put one, yeah. That that's that's really how what growing up was like. I mean, I was bused to my magnet school. I mean, you know, I, um, th these are things that felt very much like I was still living in, you know, the pre-civil rights South. And right. so, I mean, it wasn't as, it wasn't as extreme as if you drink out of this water fountain, you're going to get lynched. Or, I mean, I, I went to school with white kids, but that's what I'm saying. I mean, obviously that's a huge change like integration but in terms of my day-to-day -day life right maybe the mailman might have been white the mm. bus driver was always um my mother worked for a family you know um she's a she's a, my mother just retired as a hospice nurse but you know for a while she was but she she went back to school my mother is a very determined person I mean, my my power comes from matriarchy. I mean, right. my yeah. and I think you know that, Ed. I think yep. everything yep. you said, the way you introduced me, like I don't think that's a surprise. <laughs> but um, that that um, it, it it always struck me the balance required for racism to exist because it it requires intimacy, right? And mm -hmm. that's the brutality of it that it requires. 
especially in Jim Crow, I mean, you're you're talking about this this balance between life and death for Black folks if they ever uh, uh, cross those boundaries. And so I'm I'm just trying to capture that in my work. The um, capture the brutality, capture the tenderness, capture the longing, and capture what what could happen if people could break out of these structured expectations that racism said that this is what I'm supposed to be because racism dictates this. Um, and so I'm more interested in uh, telling telling that story and having it be honest um, than anything else. I, I don't I don't I don't think that I'm thinking so much about about educating white people right. as much as I'm thinking about uh, empowering us to see ourselves as humans and having conversations that enable people to be free yeah. in, in whatever in what whatever bondage they might find themselves in I'm hoping to to write them out of that man that's oh i i can talk to you all day <laughs> like all day i'm telling you hey listen dr tamika uh like i said you are unique in every aspect of the word and you know your perspective your viewpoints and you know you know your your stories of you know the love and the pain and you know everything that you share you know fighting for your identity and the balance between life and death for black people um it's 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 absolutely phenomenal i cannot wait for your novel to come out um you know, and I am really looking forward to more and more of our conversation. It has been an honor, a pleasure for you to have you on the edge with Eddie. This is just the beginning. We will definitely continue. Um, right now, though, before I let you go, I'm going to give you a minute to give a, uh, a message out to the world. Tell the world something in a minute. If you had a chance to talk to everybody or speak to the world that everybody's gonna hear you. What would you want the world to hear from Dr. Tamika Cage Count? Don't delay what makes you great. If there is something inside of you that you feel makes you great, pursue it even when you don't have anybody's permission. Give yourself, give yourself permission to soar into that greatness and don't ask nobody. There you go. You heard it from, you heard it from Dr. Tamika. Don't wait, y'all. Don't be waiting for anything. You don't need permission to be great from anybody. Go on and soar and be great on your own because the power to be great is within you and you just need to unleash that and be great. Thank Amen. you so much for being on The Edge with Eddie. You know what? I can't wait for us to get back together and start this conversation again. It's going to be awesome. Hey, 
let's go to Ghana again. We need to go to Ghana together, right? I'm ready. I'm I ready. Mean, we need to go. Like, I need to get you involved in my nonprofit and working with, like, you know, sort of the the, the girls that we work with in Ghana and talking about uh, um, the menstrual cycle and how sometimes it's taboo to talk about those things. I can't wait for us to have those conversations. I can't wait to go to Ghana together. We we're about to change this world i'm just saying i'm so ready i'm yeah. ready to go back i mean we didn't even talk about the year of the return i'm ready no no way it's coming it's coming it's coming so, uh, all right it has been an honor though for real uh thank you for joining on the edge and we will definitely come to the conversation thank you thank you thank you it's a wrap <laughs>